You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. As gardeners, we love talking about soil. It's probably our favourite subject. In fact, the most popular Plants Grow Here episode is episode 2, Intro to Soil Science with Dr. Samantha Grover. But what about the nasty side of soil? In this episode, Sheridan Chapman is going to give us an introduction to soil hazards with an overview of some of the biggest risks, as well as a bit of risk assessment. Sheridan is a contaminated land consultant at a Melbourne-based environmental consultancy. G'day Sheridan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. So Sheridan, what can happen when we underestimate or are unaware of soil hazards? Well, soil hazards uh, can be pretty, you know, can be pretty varied. So there's kind of the immediate hazards like, you know, things like broken glass where you might end up cutting your finger. But then there's the more invisible stuff where you may not know about it until sort of 30 years down the track. You know, you go to your doctor and they say, oh, have you ever been exposed to this? And, hmm. you know, you've, you've got no idea about it, but it's sort of it's secretly been in your garden the whole time. Yeah, wow. So glyphosate is a controversial subject on this podcast. Some people love it and some people really would like it banned. From your perspective, is glyphosate safe and in what circumstances? Yeah, so the whole thing with glyphosate is you need to know the difference between hazard and risk. So a hazard is, you know, what can go wrong, whereas a risk is, okay, if something goes wrong, how badly is it going to go wrong? And how likely is it that it's going to go wrong? So there are a bunch of agencies kind of across the world and they do risk assessments and they sort of set out all the hazards that, you know, that might go wrong and they then work out the likelihood and sort of how, how what might be the result of that. Um, there is one particular agency that decided, actually, no, we just need to look at the hazard of it, not the risk. So mm. they're the ones that have said, yeah, glyphosate is a problem. So everyone else who's who have looked at that kind of likelihood of things going wrong have gone, well, no, people don't drink it. They don't sit in it for three days at a time. Mm. They don't, you know, it's sort of, they don't, they use it mostly like the label says. So, and when, when it's used by the, how the label says, then yeah, it's perfectly safe to use. So the problem is people often don't read labels. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And what about, does it sort of break down in the soil or will it sit there for the next 10 generations? No, glyphosate actually breaks down pretty quickly. So there isn't um, really a withholding period for glyphosate. So once it's been sprayed, as lo- so once it's not airborne and once the plants aren't actually wet anymore, then they're okay to touch. I mean, I, you know, I, I like to take precautions and I'd wash my hands anyway, but you know, it's it it's you know you don't have to keep your dog out of the garden once the once the leaves are dry. There's a lot of other uh, herbicides and pesticides and stuff where they say once it's sprayed, don't enter it for you know X hours after it's been sprayed, just to make sure that there's nothing left. So glyphosate isn't nearly as nasty as some of those ones. Absolutely, I'd like to talk about them in a second, but. Uh, As a professional landscape maintenance person of 10 years, that was definitely something that a lot of clients would ask me, how long until I can let my dog out? 
And they didn't like hearing that, yeah, well, technically you can let the dog out as soon as it's dry. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted to keep the dog inside for two weeks or something. <laughs> well, I mean, if they want to keep their dog inside for two weeks, go for it. But um, yeah, yeah, from a you know, if you're talking about sort of potential potential harm, then as soon as it's dry, then it's it's fine for sort of you know kids and animals to be playing there. Mm. So another thing I've seen recently on social media is people who don't like glyphosate would rather sometimes, and this is especially you know um, home organic YouTubers and bloggers and stuff like that. Um, they will prefer to use salt than glyphosate. What do you think about using salt instead of glyphosate from a soil perspective? I think in not too long they're going to have difficulty growing anything in their soil. <laughs> so, you know, the, you know, there's a, there's a reason that uh, salt the earth used to be a, um, you know, sort of used to be an expression that you'd use like during wartime and stuff. Um, <laughs> so yes, it, it, possibly it would. It kills some insects. I think it's, you know, kills some plants and everything, but I think they're more likely to do long-term damage to their soil just by um, sort of increasing the salt content. But apparently it's okay if you only put the salt in the leaves, right? Well, so, so it looks pretty for a little while. I'm not sure how that's going to how that's going to kill any plants. Oh, well, no, no, because it sits on the leaves, but it doesn't make it into the soil. Ah, are they aware of how of how plants work? Because uh, last time last time I looked, there were little holes in the leaves that uh, would take water in when rain fell on it and would transport it through the plant to the roots. Yeah, and also soil carbon. I mean, those plants are eventually going to make their way into that soil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, sort of plants are a system. What you know, what goes in goes round and then goes out. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it would be nice if we could have a, a nice, safe herbicide that there's absolutely no risks. Unfortunately, maybe we should be looking at the professionals and what they're using. I, I mean, if yeah. table salt worked, we'd probably be using that. Yes, well, that's, that's the thing. It's actually, a, it's actually a principle in terms of occupational safety that, you know, if there's a safer alternative, you should be using it. So if mm-hmm. you have a look at some of the sort of occupational history of a lot of chemical use and some of the stuff we used to use back in the day was awful, you know, mm-hmm. but um, sort of over time as sort of better alternatives have become available, that's what we've transitioned to. So glyphosate is probably one of the safer herbicides on the market. That's why it's sort of sold to the general public. You know, some of some of the other stuff that's out there, um, yeah, you don't see that on the shelf in Bunnings. Mm, great point. So let's move on to those other chemical pesticides. Are there any that are worth mentioning from a soil hazard perspective? Um, so when we do soil assessments, a lot of what we look for are sort of the organochlorine pesticides and um, sort of some of the acid herbicides and everything. But, um, you know, they don't show up too often. Because, um, you know, occasionally you do find sort of a bit of aldrin and a bit of dieldrin and, and that sort of stuff in the soil, but it's it's from historical use. So the stuff that's used now doesn't tend to be nearly as persistent in the soil. My dad talks about how DDT was used on farms when he was a kid. So it's sort of a, a big shift since then, isn't it? Yeah. So you, you have a look at... Um, you know, some of the old cartoons from that time where they've got kids skipping around, you know, singing DDT is good for me. <laughs> yeah, we, we learn a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, we live and we learn, don't we, luckily. 
Yeah. And in Australia, we're very lucky that our government really takes a lot of this sort of stuff seriously. So our labels are pretty trustworthy. And, you know, if something's legal, generally, it's we can assume it's pretty safe. Yeah, so there's a, there's a reason that labels are on containers. Yeah, <laughs> and they set it. They, well, they set out how you can safely use them. So you know, yes, if if you if you don't use glyphosate in accordance with the label, if you sit there and drink it, then yes, you are likely to have a problem. But if you're drinking glyphosate, you've probably already got a problem. Yeah. It's pro- you're probably you got a problem at that point. Um, <laughs> but also, you can't even wipe it on your forehead. Like, the, you got pores on your forehead, you got pores on your skin. So, if you've got a little bit on your fingers, it's already making its way in. Certainly, don't touch any of your glands because it, you don't even need to drink it to take it into your body. Yeah. So, so, so a lot of chemicals can be taken up through the skin. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of tests on on uh, sort of how well that gets through your skin. Um, Glyphosate isn't too bad. Like there, there's there's worse stuff out there, but um, yeah, there's a reason that the label says use gloves, wear long sleeves, mm. and wash your hands before you go. You know, go, you go and get something to eat or have a smoke. Sort of, you know, anywhere mm. your hands are going near your mouth, you don't. You want to make sure they're clean. Absolutely. So let's move on to Legionella now. What is Legionnaire's disease, and how can we introduce it into our soil? Yep. Yeah, so you actually get Legionella bacteria in your soil naturally. So there's there's sort of small sort of small quantities of it through the soil everywhere. Um, the problem is, it's when you put when uh, you're using potting mix. Potting mix is actually a really good area for bacteria to multiply. So mm. it's nice and you know it's nice and damp. There's a lot of nutrients and everything. So the bacteria just multiply and go crazy. So yeah, Legionella is a problem in potting mix. So there's a few directions on your on your potting mix bag, you know, sort of similar to your glyphosate labels that tell you how, uh, sort of how to use it a bit safer. So things like sort of opening the bag away from you and, um, you know, not having your face too close to it when you're opening it. Um, also, the way you store it is quite important. So if you keep it cool, that makes it much more difficult for bacteria to multiply. Mm. So if you keep it out in your hot shed, it's going to get all puffy and that means that there's a lot of uh, activity going on in there, right? Yeah. So if you, if, you, if it's starting to get puffy, that means the bacteria have been having a good old time and uh, there's, there's quite a lot of them in there now. So because sort of every living thing is going to give off gas, like, you know, we give off like carbon dioxide and stuff like that. So that's probably where your puffiness of your bag is coming from. <laughs> mm. So what happens if we get Legionnaire's disease? So... If you breathe in some of those bacteria, look, the majority of people will be okay, but there are, you know, but some people will be quite badly affected by it. So Legionnaires is a respiratory disease. Um, it can, you know, it can land you in the hospital. It There have been fatalities from it, um, but it's sort of most people will be fine, but things that increase your risk factors are things like being a little bit older or smoking. Um sort of, you know, and already having a respiratory condition underlying, like, you know, sort of asthma or something. Mm. Right. So it's not so much from the touch, it's from actually breathing it in. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's okay to, you know, I mean, it's not great to have it on your hands, but it's also not going to be <laughs> that big an issue. It's when you it's when you start breathing it in that it becomes the issue because sort of the area, you know, your lungs are quite 
nice and moist and warm and it's a good place for bacteria to multiply. Yeah, totally. I actually heard a story about a bean sprout <laughs> um, opening up in someone's lungs, like uh, germinating in someone's lungs. It was a BBC article. This was a few years ago, but I thought that was extraordinary. Yeah, it is. Um, I haven't heard about that one in particular, but, uh, you know, sort of when I was talking before about uh, about risk and about your, your consequence and, you know, sort of your, mm. your likelihood of that happening, um, yeah, I think your likelihood on that one is, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> millions to one. But, um, yeah, it's not a yeah. nice consequence. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, that's why that story sticks out, right, because it's absolutely unheard of and you'll probably yeah. never hear of that happening again. <laughs> I'd still be careful with my bean sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't breathe them, just swallow them. So I guess how we prevent Legionnaire's disease is by following the label and by not breathing in. Um, I guess would this also um, matter for home compost and stuff like that, I imagine? You know, you're going to have the same bacteria in that sort of environment. Would that be right? Yeah, so you're going to get those nice warm conditions for bacteria as well. So mm. um, with your potting mix, you can get pasteurized versions. So if you have a look on the label, sometimes they say pasteurized and that's that's why. So that's been that's been um, sort of heat treated to the point that it's going to kill off bacteria. Mm. But um, yeah, if you're talking home compost, then um, yeah, I'd probably be, you know, pulling out the masks that we've all got and um, just, you know, have that on when you're shoveling it around. Because when you're shoveling it around, you are creating sort of clouds of dust from it and um, bacteria are perfectly happy to travel in that dust. Mm, absolutely. So let's move on to some other soil hazards now. What about asbestos? How can we tell if we've got asbestos in our soil? Like maybe we've just bought a property, we're very excited and we dig in, but there's just something in the soil. Like how would we identify what asbestos looks like? Yeah. So the most common way you're going to see asbestos in soil is generally as um, in cement sheet. So, you know, while you're digging, you might find sort of bits of bits of broken concrete, probably uh, what about sort of three to five millimeters thick, and on one side you might end up with a dimple pattern like a golf ball. So right. that sort of thing, I'd be very suspicious of as potential asbestos. So the only way that you're going to know for sure is if you take it to a lab and get them to test it. But um, if you find anything like that that you suspect, I'd be chucking that into, um, you know, one of your little sam little sandwich Ziploc bag and then put it inside another bag and just keep it, just keep it separate and keep it safe. Right. Okay. And in terms of asbestos, that's another soil-borne thing, right? So that gets into our lungs. That's the main hazard. Is that correct? Yeah. So asbestos is actually a natural mineral, um, and it's it's you know it's still mined in some parts of the world for use. But um, yeah. So the problem with asbestos is that when the fibers break down, they break down to exactly the wrong size to um, <laughs> get quite deep in our lungs. And our lungs sit there and try and get rid of it with our immune system. And they sort of, they keep attacking it and keep attacking it and keep attacking it, but it doesn't break down because it's a mineral. So it's, you know, so it's quite tough. But because mm. of that, it causes some scarring in your lungs. So sort of the more fibers that you get exposed to, the more of these little sort of spots of scars you get all over your lungs. And that makes it a bit more difficult for your lungs to function because they don't, they don't have the flexibility to go in and out like they're supposed to. So 
you know, they, they, t- they say with asbestos, you know, they say one fibre kills, but that's not necessarily true. But mm. uh, because we don't know what that magic number is, you know, you're best off being as safe as you can with it. Absolutely. So if you've got asbestos in your soil and it's eroding, especially through wind erosion, you're going to be quite concerned and your neighbours should be concerned as well. Yeah, so you're not going to get sort of mass exposure from a couple of bits in your garden. But if you start digging in your garden, and you you know, you find a piece and you find another one and another one and another one, that's when you start that's when you start to be worried. So, okay. uh, you know, I've dug up asbestos in my own garden and I've just, you know, I've found a piece or two and I've just bagged it up and I've I've taken it off to um be disposed in an asbestos bin. Mm. And you're not too worried as a professional soil hazard. What what do you call your role by the way? So I'm a contaminated land consultant, which um, okay. you know covers covers a covers a wide stretch of things, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So if you're not concerned about one or two pieces, would you say that somebody who doesn't really know what they're looking at should be concerned if they find one or two pieces in their yard? Now, one or two pieces isn't that big a thing. So, okay, you know. Like with like with the like with the glyphosate, if you're talking you're talking hazard instead of risk. So everybody's mm. been really scared of asbestos for a long time. But, you know, I've worked with guys who sort of go and deal with it every day at work for their whole careers and they they, they come out fine at the end of it. Mm. So but it's about it's it's about taking those proper precautions when you do it when you're doing it. So if you're finding it in the garden, you Put it, you, you double bag it and you take it to, you know, sort of t- um, usually your local council tip will take will take household asbestos. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you sort of in, in the occupational space, you sort of you go the full hog and you, you've you got your disposable suits on, you've got your half-face respirators and everything, mm-hmm. but that's because they're going into environments where there's a lot of it and where it's going to be broken because mm-hmm. we go in and we – we remove well sorry. the contractors we work with go in and they remove it so it's it's our job usually to um to be running some air monitoring and to make sure that nothing's getting outside of the workspace and everything right so let's say somebody finds actually quite a lot of it in their soil and they are concerned would they just quickly google asbestos soil removal or something like that to find a professional to take care of that for them yeah, so asbestos removalists can do that. Um, so you need either a Class A or a Class B licensed asbestos removalist. Um, you know, tell you know you can tell you tell them sort of what the job is and sort of maybe how big an area you think it might be, how deep you think it might go, and they can they can help out with that. So they will come in with rakes and everything to turn over the top sort of 10, 20 centimeters of soil to make sure that they get everything out of that. But um, right. yeah, if you you know if you find a buried pit of it or something, then um, well, for one thing, your developer's done you dirty. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it it the thing is, I have seen that on some sites because um, you know there weren't always rules about cleaning things up before you built a new building, and some of the old mm. um, demolition practices meant that they pretty much collapsed the house in place and built on top of it. So um, there's there's a surprising amount of asbestos in soils, sort of particularly across urban areas. Yeah, wow. So let's move on now to acid sulfates. What are they and how can we tell when they're present in our soil? 
So your acid sulfate soils are, um, you know, they're naturally occurring, but they're kind of um, old old sediments and stuff. So um, acid sulfate soils you're going to find mostly around the coast. So if you're less than about 20 metres, uh, you know, AHD, then um, you're not, you know, you, you'll, uh, you know, you've got a possibility of finding them. So, um, so yeah, actually, a good way to check that is if if you hop on Google Earth, you can uh, you can have a look at your property and um, you can see how high it is above sea level. So there's, there's a little thing in the corner that says will say you know X meters AHD, which is Australian height datum. So if you if you are higher than 20 meters, you're unlikely to find it. Um, but yeah, if you st- if you start digging and you find sort of really dark coloured soils that sort of stink a little bit like rotten eggs and they've got little bits of shell and everything, you're quite possibly hitting some acid sulfate soils. Okay. And so why is that a hazard? Um, so when acid sulfate soils are um, exposed to oxygen, they start actually producing acid. So, right. you know, your pH drops like a stone and it can start it can sort of start to burn so that's particularly an issue if you start putting you know your your building foundations into that because um yeah they're not going to last right so they'll just sort of uh, erode away at your foundations yeah that's one of one of the reasons that the uh, docklands is having a bit of trouble at the moment that's all built on acid sulfate soils Oh no! So, what do you do there? Is it just a case of build somewhere else, or um, you can deal with it? Um, so there there are a few ways to sort of deal with it. So you, you'd start by writing a, a specific management plan for that site and say, okay, we're going to dig it out to this depth, and we're going to we're going we're gonna to put these kind of soils in their place, and we're going to you know we're going to sort of we're going to apply lime to this to raise the pH. We get so, but yeah, it's it's more a if you're finding if you're finding acid sulfate soils, it's probably time to get a professional in to help you out with that. Mm. Yeah, I imagine that can be quite difficult because you've got the variability whether or not one particular section has been exposed to oxygen. Yeah, well, that's that's also the problem. If you try and dig them up, then um, mm. you know you're going to expose them to oxygen. So sometimes it might be better to change your building design so you don't need such deep so you don't need foundations deep mm. enough to hit it. Yeah, and sometimes it might be um you know what? I'm going to leave that and leave it to be someone else's problem. Mm. just sell it and not tell anybody what you found there. I am not sure you're not allowed to tell people if you know, but um but it's it's a it's a reason that um we do a lot of assessments before somebody buys a site. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And that was obviously a joke. If you're going to sell a property and you know about some sort of a hazard, uh, even just not even if it's just not legally, I'm sure that they're illegal and you can probably speak to the legal aspects soon. But just from a moral point of view, how can you live with yourself if you do something like that? But can you speak about the legal point of view? Like, So obviously you do have to disclose hazards that you know about before you sell, right? Um, yeah, if you've got information, you are supposed to provide it to the next person. Um, it doesn't always happen but um yeah particularly under the sort of the new environment protection act in victoria um you've got you've got a general environmental duty to not cause harm so and part of that is if you know that there's something 
at your, you know, if you know that there's something at your property that could be an issue, then, you know, you are not fulfilling your duty if you don't tell the next owner. Just not being a good human either. So let's speak about some other activities and events that can cause soil to become hazardous. Are there any sort of other bad building practices, chemical spills, or any other things that can cause soil hazards? Yeah. So when we start to assess a site, um, we often start by doing a bit of a history review on it. And there's, there's definitely some red flags that those can throw up that we sort of say, okay, no, we're likely to have contamination here. Um, mm. So we look at old aerial photos and if there's been buildings that have been demolished, we say, okay, there might be asbestos in that soil. Um, we have a look at old certificates of title and we see what kind of, we see who's owned it before. And if, you know, we see it's been owned by um, petroleum companies, we go, oh, okay, possibly it was a servo. So, and, uh, you know, in your service stations, you get um, buried, you get buried tanks, so big underground tanks where the fuel's stored. And when those mm-hmm. leak, they can, they can cause big contamination issues. Um, we have a look at old business directories. And um, if there was a dry cleaner nearby, dry cleaners, the, the chemicals that they use, if they once they leak and get into get through the soil and into groundwater, they move a long way. And um, yeah, the, right. the big problem with dry cleaning chemicals is they come back up through the floor as vapor. Oh no! And they're water yeah. soluble, so. Ugh. Yeah. So yeah. So some some of those chem- some of those chemicals um, can actually get, you know, you get so much in groundwater that it actually forms a separate layer to the water. Sort of, it reaches solubility. Oh, no. <laughs> so um, it happens happens a lot with service station sites. You get you get like almost a layer of petrol floating on top of the water. Yep, that's gross. So maybe if you're going to buy a house, yeah, have a look at the history. Don't buy where a servo used to be. Yeah. So. The thing is, if it's if um, the council zones it as residential, then uh, yeah, it's you're not going to have that kind of history unless it's been cleaned up. So there's actually there's actually what we call the environmental audit system in Victoria. So there's similar systems in other states, but um, yeah, in Victoria, old um, sort of industrial sites or old commercial sites, um, they have to go through an environmental audit before they can be rezoned for residential use. So part of that mm. audit is you assess to see how bad contamination might be and then you have to do what you can to clean it up. So obviously you can't get down there and scrub, you know, scrub the contamination <laughs> off every bit of soil, but there are a lot of techniques that you can use to remove that petrol layer on top of groundwater or that you can um, sort of do with soil or with groundwater to clean it up. So if there's a major operation, obviously professionals are going to have to come in and do it. But what about a home gardener or a landscaper who's maybe just had a small petrol spill in the yard? Is that something they should be concerned about? Should they clean it up? Or at what point do you just sort of say, it doesn't really matter? Um, If you get a small petrol spill in your backyard, like, you know, if you knock over your jerry can or something, um, one of the best things with petrol is actually to let oxygen at it. So... If I did that in my own backyard, I would be getting, you know, getting a shovel kind of thing and I'd be breaking up that soil a little bit and I'd turn it over a few times, probably until it doesn't smell anymore. 
I see. So, so yeah, petrol breaks down quite well in the presence of oxygen. But yeah, I yeah I would also sort of be looking at my jerry can and going, okay, do I need this bigger container that <laughs> it can spill, or can I get you know one of those ones with like a flatter base or a little bit shorter, so it, so I can't knock it over again. Mm. Yeah, not everybody needs a 20-litre jerry can. A lot of people get away with a couple of five litres, one for the two-stroke, one for the four-stroke. Yeah, and, you know, if I, if you only need, you know, 200 mil of it today, then maybe decant that in your shed where there's a concrete floor mm-hmm. so that if you spill it, it sort of stays where it is. And then, then you, you know, your jerry can doesn't need to move out of the shed. Brilliant. So are there any other hazards, any other red flags that would sort of get your attention? Oh, there's a whole variety of them. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> no, we 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 sort of have a, almost a bingo list of um, you know things that might cause contamination and sort of the contamination that might go with it. So, you know, on uh, sort of the big old agricultural properties, we look out for sheep dips because uh, you get arsenic contamination associated with that. So, because right. um, used to be part of the you know sort of part of the um, the application on the sheep. And they then let them drip on the grass yeah. and everything, and so you end up with um, some high high arsenic around there. And arsenic takes a long time to break down, right? Uh, arsenic doesn't really break down at all. So because mm. ars- arsenic is natural, it's not necessarily nice, but it's natural. Mm. So um, yeah, some of the things like petroleum and stuff are going to break down over time, and sort of even some of those dry cleaning chemicals will eventually break down. But uh, things like metals, so you know, your arsenic, your lead, your nickel, your zinc, all that sort of stuff, it doesn't really break down because mm. it's you know it's just kind of been relocated. <laughs> <laughs> Not good. So you even you even get um, naturally elevated concentrations of arsenic and things like that, like in the gold region. So sort of the goldfields region of Victoria, you know that kind of Ballarat Bendigo sort of area, you get mm. naturally high arsenic. Because um, arsenic and gold occur together, so I mean, people have concentrated it a little bit because um, sort of when they were mining gold, they would wash the they'd sort of wash the ore and everything, which means they'd take the gold out and get all the arsenic in one place. So mm. you also um, often find cyanide or mercury in those areas because they, they were sort of they used to use mercury to get the gold out of the ore and um, when they worked out how bad mercury was, they started using cyanide instead, which you know, <laughs> sounds ridiculous, but it is slightly less nasty than mercury. Mm. Well, mercury is not nice. Um, so I guess people who are living in those areas, is that something that they need to think about? Like if they're in Ballarat, let's just say someone who's listening right now lives in Ballarat and they're thinking, oh, gee, do I need to get a soil test in my backyard just because I live in this area? So usually the houses in Ballarat would have a, some sort of imported soil brought in on top. Mm. Um, I wouldn't be digging very deep in a Bendigo or Ballarat backyard, but there's also there's there's lots of um, sort of mines of historical mine. So there's maps of historical mining activities across Ballarat, so you can sort of work out where the worst areas are going to be. And the council doesn't actually let you build houses there until it's till something's yeah. been done about cleaning it up. So you'll also find that. That plants in the uh, that sort of native that are native to the Bendigo and Ballarat region, they've been dealing with arsenic for centuries, so it really doesn't bother them. Mm. 
What about the fruit and veg though? Like let's say we've got some deep rooted fruit and veggies. Is that going to make its way into the produce? With metals, generally not. So okay. um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, sort of scientific literature out there doing studies of how much, you know, sort of how much lead that this particular, you know, that a tomato plant would take up through its roots and how much of that would then end up in the tomatoes. So there's lots of that for lots of different species. So metals don't move that well. Mm. So uh, there are, you know, there are other things that move a bit easier, but um yeah, particularly fruit and veg, they're actually really good at not caring what around what's what around <laughs> their roots. <laughs> well, there you go. Don't listen to the organic YouTubers then. Oh, yeah. Well, so the organic YouTubers, I think <laughs> um, they have a point about, you know, things like washing your fruit and veg before using it and not, you know, trying not to use too many chemicals. But, you know, if the, if the choice is having a, you know, having an apple that's been infested with bugs or one that's been you know sprayed with an insecticide and then and then you know carefully cleaned i'll take the carefully cleaned one thank you hmm, that's very interesting so what i guess would systemic pesticides make their way into a fruit or veg um so commercially produced uh, fruit and veg they actually have what are called maximum residue limits so they get te- so the, something from most batches is tested to make sure that it's meeting it's sort of meeting those requirements and if it mm. doesn't that batch never sees a supermarket so your home fruit and veg um you know i doubt you're using the nastiest things that you can possibly use on them but it's also about how much of it you eat so mm. our soil guidelines um actually sort of they've they're quite complicated how they're put together, but part of it is they assume that 10% of your diet comes from your from your own backyard. So when we when we do our assessments, we sort of go, okay, if somebody is eating, you know, if somebody is 10% of somebody's diet is coming from their backyard, would it be safe? So we've got we've got sort of numbers for each for each metal against that. So that's part of the assessment we do before development can occur on a site. Mm. Um, you know, it'd be pretty rare these days, I think, for people to get a full 10% of their diet from their backyard, certainly in Mm. urban areas. Oh, I grow my own veg. No way am I close to 10%. Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know, it's sort of no matter how how fruitful your garden is, you're still going (laughs) to be topping it up from the supermarket. (laughs) Mm, 100%. So I guess, you know, if, if you've got one problem in your garden and you're only eating fruit and veg from your garden, then it's going to become compounded. But if we're eating widely, we're probably going to be much better off. Yeah. And, you know, if you've got, you know, bear in mind, produce is also seasonal. So you're not going to mm. be eating, you know, you're not going to be eating, you know, 15 potatoes from your garden every single day of, of the year you know so there there's actually there's actually a whole bunch of guidance on if you are you know on sort of the proportion of vegetables and fruits that each people that people eat so there's 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 a document out there that says you know a child is likely to eat you know 60 grams of mulberries per day Mm. you know (laughs) you know whatever the numbers are but you know it's yeah (laughs) yeah so (laughs) But, you know, we make all these guidelines 
based on assumptions that people are going to eat X amount of something per day. So you can actually calculate, you can use that to calculate what's a safe amount to eat or, you know, or going sort of going the other way when we should tell people not to eat things. Mm. And we throw it out of whack when we sit on the couch and we eat the whole bag of pistachios when we should have only eaten a small handful. Well, it depends. If you don't do that every day, that's actually okay. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> Try not to do it every day, but God, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I like sitting there with pistachios. <laughs> yeah, they are the bomb. <laughs> so let's move on to some other source hazards now. Like, what about poor soil structure? Can erosion be dangerous? It depends on how you define danger. So I would say it can definitely be a problem. Um, mm. But, yeah, so in Melbourne, you, you're not going to have sort of a massive issues with erosion except for the areas where you get sodic soils. So if you've got sodic soils, um, sort of any water going over those soils is going to sort of release fine particles from those soils and wash them away. So that can be a major problem if you're trying to build on it because if you put down a slab on that and all the water from, you know, the sort of the water mm. washes away the soil underneath it, your slab's going to slump and crack and break and you don't really want that in your living room. No. And I guess when you say sodic soils, you're talking about salt. It's sodium. So the salt sort of absorbs the water and then as that water sort of gets between the soil particles, they say the soil explodes, right? Um, to be honest, that's it's more that's more about the physical side of of soil oh. hazards. So um, I, I deal more with the chemical side of it. So um, I'm going yeah, back sodic, to take, sodic so. soils. <laughs> <laughs> now, sodic sodic soils are not uh, you know sort of not a major part of my work. <laughs> mm, there you go. So yeah, so I guess uh, erosion. You know, you don't want your foundation to crumble, as you say. It's not necessarily like a toxic thing. It's more of a physical, mechanical thing. Yeah, there's no, there wouldn't be any tox sort of issues with it. It's purely, you know, I was standing here and suddenly what I'm standing on is gone. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not quite as extreme as you might get somewhere like Adelaide where cause, because they're on limestone, you do get the occasional sinkhole just opening up. But, mm. uh, yeah, that doesn't really happen here in Victoria. <laughs> Gotcha. That's good to know. Well, the sodic thing is an issue. So if anybody ever sees really muddy water, like if your water constantly just gets really muddy, that's probably a sign that you've got some salt in there because salt is, uh, it, it, it uh, dissolves in water. And that's basically what, why it gets so muddy straight away. If it's a clear puddle, it's probably not sodic. Yeah, well, it's probably probably another good reason not to apply salt to your, um, you know, to your tomatoes in, instead of glyphosate. <laughs> Yeah, well, your soil will wash away. Not only will it become sort of inhospitable to plants. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about this briefly, but how can somebody look into the history of a block of land before they purchase it? Yep. So um, that's something that we do regularly for our clients. We call it a preliminary site investigation. Um, so there's, actu there's, there's actually sort of a list of things that you should cover to do a full one. But if you are, um, you know, sort of, you know, average householder, I would say start with the um, the Land Vic channel. So so it's a website, and you can you can have a look, and you can get a free property report from that website if you put the address in. 
So you can download that and it will tell you things like the zoning. It will tell you if there's any planning overlays or all that sort of stuff. So some of the planning overlays to watch out for, if it says environmental audit overlay, um, as an average householder, I would say steer clear of that property wow. um, yep. because that means that an audit hasn't been done yet and it's going to need to be done and they are not cheap. Um, right. Yeah. So the, the other thing is to make sure that it's actually zoned residential. You can also have a look and see um, how close you know, other, how close other zoning might be. So, you know, if it's next door to an industrial zone, it may not be so nice. Um, but, you know, if it's all surrounded by sort of green wedge or something, you may find that in the years to come, you may end up with a lot of extra houses around you as that changes. So, yeah, some of it is, um, you know, sort of crystal balling and looking looking into the future. But um, anyway, the, the uh, planning property reports and everything are, are quick free way to sort of see if there are any major red flags with it brilliant maybe even asking as well because uh, you know if someone's been using salt on their soil or if they've been spraying ddt 30 years ago that may not have made it onto any report but if you ask the previous owner they may tell you proudly yeah no i never used glyphosate all i've ever done for the last 30 years is put salt on the weeds yeah, I'd be a little bit wary of that. Um, but yeah, some of some of the some of the best information we get when we do assi- when we do assessments is uh, talking to the people who've been on that site for the last forty years, and they can tell you, oh yeah, we used to put the drums of chemical right there, and you know we used to put mm. that there, and yeah, oh Larry spilled a massive thing of um, you know a massive <laughs> thing of dry cleaning chemicals out the back once, and you know, sort of it it helps to target our assessment and see just how bad the problem is <laughs> yeah so i guess this would should really go unsaid but i'd like to touch on it briefly how can our soil hazards affect others in the community and also the ecology at large yep so the, some of the chemical spills you know some of them they stay in sort of the local soil and they're they're a problem for that property but some of them, if they're big enough or if the soil is sandy enough, they actually they actually move down through the soil and they get into groundwater. So groundwater is always moving and flowing and like it doesn't move particularly fast in Melbourne because we have quite sort of tight soils, but it does move. Mm. So you end up with what we call plumes of contamination just kind of spreading across the landscape. Um so in particular, in sort of old industrial areas, you get those kind of plumes and, you know, or maybe the maybe the edge of that area got rezoned to residential. So we'll do an assessment. We'll put we'll put groundwater bores into that into that property to see to see what's underneath it. And we can find contamination that's come from three doors up, but it's so bad that it's going to make enough vapor that that comes up through the floor that it's actually a health risk to live there. Mm-hmm. So there are ways around that. So you can you can design the building so that it vents that vapor or it sort of moves it in a different direction or something like that. But that's why it's important to have a look and to know what's underneath the site. Mm. You've got a test to know that. Mm. So, yeah, in, in terms of ecology, um, yeah, where the, particularly where there's sort of surface contamination. So if you, you know, if you did knock over your jerry can sort of in the backyard or anything, 
then that can become mobile when it rains or sort of mm. when surface water washes across because your surface water, um, you know, sort of when it rains, it all it, you've, got, you've got water running everywhere and it goes down the stormwater drains and that's the last that we think of it. But those stormwater mm-hmm. drains, they eventually connect up with creeks and there's no treatment of stormwater before it hits those creeks. So, you know, so unlike unlike the sort of the water that goes down your sink or whatever, that gets treated and sort of, you know, all the all the stuff gets settled out of it and it, it gets cleaned and everything. But um, that, that doesn't happen with stormwater. So anything that's in the stormwater, it'll go into a creek. So... Um, yeah, you can get you can get some effects on aquatic life with that. So you know you might get the occasional fish kill through some things. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you can also also the plants that are on the site will take up contamination through their roots and into the body of the plant. Um, so you know, sort of stuff like spinach is really bad for that. They, they it likes to take stuff up and have it in the leaves right. that's then there for us to eat. So that's that's part of why our um, our soil screening levels sort of include those assumptions that um, you're going to eat some of that. Right. So there are some things that are going to make it into the trees and fruit and veg, but just not the heavy metals. Yeah. So there's some. So things like PFAS are. Um, you know, you hear you hear a lot about it in the media. Sort of, you know, the toxic firefighting chemicals. So those are particularly good at getting into plants, mm. and then sort of you get animals eating those plants and then we eat those animals mm-hmm. and then so that sort of that sort of food chain things that that's where a lot of that's where I, I do a lot of my work is working out okay if there's this much in the soil how much of it is going to get into that plant and how much of that is then going to get into this animal and then how much is going to get into this animal that eats that animal so you sort of sit there working out food webs and working out sort of how big a problem it might be because if it's too big a problem, if it gets to the point where where what we call where the risk is considered unacceptable, then we have to we go back to the original and we start cleaning up that original source. Hmm. So sometimes cleaning up means digging out that soil and taking it off to landfill, and just bringing in new topsoil from a completely different part of the country. That's the one. <laughs> Ideally, you want to get it from somewhere fairly local so that it's not too big a difference, but um, mm. you know, also to minimize your trucking costs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, you're, you know, obviously like every time you're bringing in soil from anywhere, there's just huge waste. It's like in terms of carbon, in terms of like resources, time, money. Um, obviously, the less far we can get things, the better. Yeah, there's also a lot of rules that the EPA has about what soil you can bring on. Mm. So they, they've got some very strict guidelines on, you know, this is considered clean enough to use. I see. Speaking of laws, I mean, we've touched on a few now, including regulations around chemical usage, whether or not you're supposed to disclose hazards that you know about when you sell your land, but... Are there any other relevant laws in Australia related to soil hazards? So there's laws for contamination in every jurisdiction. So um, so the Victorian version is the Environment Protection Act, which has just been updated. So that's that's now a 2017 version. 
Um, you know, there's there's sort of there's the environmental protection regulations in in Queensland. There's um, I think there's a contaminated land act in New South Wales. So they've sort of each each uh, jurisdiction has got its own little set of rules. So, but sitting next to that, there's actually um, a national document called the National uh, sorry the National Environment Protection Assessment of Site Contamination Measure. So we call it the NEPM. So that sits that sits across all the jurisdictions of Australia, and it sets out, you know, this is what is considered safe at a primary school. This is what's considered safe, you know, um, at a high rise apartment. Uh, it sets out all these sort of this is what you know this is what we should be aiming for. Okay, so we just try and follow that as closely as possible, or is it a matter of no, you need to follow this letter by letter? Uh, it's a follow as close as possible. So, mm. but that's that's usually an issue for the professionals t- to worry about. So, and uh, actually, it, it it sort of gets more complicated than that because um, you know if stuff doesn't meet those initial screening levels for soil, then um, it becomes my problem. So, because I'm mm. because as well as being a contaminated land consultant, I'm a specialist health risk assessor. So my colleagues will say, oh, it's above this guideline. What does that mean? So, and then it's my job mm. to work that out. So, because, you know, sometimes the guidelines assume that you that you are growing barley in this sort of thing. So that's, that's probably not the most common crop in a backyard garden. So I can then make an assessment to sort of go, well, actually, no, these plants are more likely. So based on my calculations, actually, this is fine. Or no, we need to, we need to get that soil out of there. Yeah, wow, what a big job. What a, what an absolute, <laughs> I think, you know, Australians know the word cluster something. Um, that, that's what I, that's the first word that comes to my head is an absolute cluster F. <laughs> oh, see, my, my, my brain went the other way went the other way and thought, oh, he's, he's talking about cancer clusters. And it's like, yes, we, d- we deal with oh. those too. So, because, yeah, no, um, yeah. yeah, so that's, that's one of the reasons we do our work is so that we don't end up with a cancer cluster in 20 years. <laughs> Or a cluster so F. Uh, yes, that too. <laughs> <laughs> so Sheridan, there's one question I always like to ask guests at the end of every episode, and it doesn't have to be on topic. But is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Um, no, it's not spe- nothing. Nothing specific. It's more, um, you know, if you're going to be doing your gardening and and everything, then always read the label. So the, you know, they're not just there to make the bag look pretty, they actually do have important safety information. So, you know, and if you're going to be digging in the garden, gloves are a great idea, you know, to partly to stop yourself being a cat, get off me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. She's just, she's just walked up my chest and started rubbing on my face. Um, she can tell you're passionate about the subject. Yeah, that's the one. So yeah, gloves are gloves are a good idea when you are digging in soil. You know, not just to prevent yourself being cut by you know by sort of broken glass or pricked by a rusty nail and you know getting tetanus or something, but it's also a good idea to protect you from those invisible hazards. So you know the soil contamination that you may not know would be there. So gloves will you know gloves and long sleeves will keep you safe from a lot of what's there because mm. it minimizes your exposure. So, you know, and make sure, you know, you go and wash your hands 
before you, you know, before you grab a sandwich or something. So, because mm. um, yeah, actually, interestingly, the soil guidelines sort of they're also they also protect children. So they assume that kids play in dirt and that they eat a certain amount of dirt per day. Because you know, I, I don't know, I don't know a kid who always washes their hands before they go and have mm. lunch. You know, unless <laughs> unless their parents tell them. So you know, there's a lot of allowances sort of thing to make sure that we're safe but um you can't account for human nature <laughs> yeah or human stupidity too i've learned yes so when the uh, when sort of when the authorities do um do risk assessments on the use of pesticides they say okay we're going to do two versions of this we're going to do um <laughs> you know where, where people follow the label properly and then we're going to do the one where, you know, the guy's wearing shorts, he's wearing a singlet, he, he forgot his gloves and, you know, sort of, you know, sort of going, right, you know, how critical is, you know, is are those gloves and everything? Mm-hmm. And if they can, if they sort of go, okay, yeah, singlet guy, you know, he's, he's okay, then, um, you know, we're still going to put the recommendations for gloves because that's what people should be doing. And we know that people are going to forget sometimes, but if they remember, you know, at least half the time, then the you know they're sort of doing better than if they never wore them. Mm-hmm. Totally. Look, you mentioned glass there. One other thing I forgot to mention, which I probably should have, as a landscape maintenance person, particularly in council areas or in commercial areas, when you stick your hands in the soil, sometimes you come across a hypodermic needle, and that's not good. No, no, definitely not good. So gloves aren't always going to protect you from that. But, um, you know, I personally use tools to turn over the soil and then, you know, I've got gloves on while I'm well, – sort of while I'm going through the soil itself because my job mm-hmm. involves digging holes and then putting putting soil into jars for samples. So mm-hmm. – but, yeah, that, that sort of stuff shouldn't be there. Doesn't mean it's not. So if you, yeah. you know, if you're wearing your gloves assuming the worst, then maybe that needle gets stuck in the glove instead of in you. Yeah, and and I mean, I actually heard about a guy who was on a ride on mower, hit a hypodermic needle, and it came up and stabbed him somehow. He was on the top of the mower, and somehow from the bottom of the deck, it came up and hit him. I don't know how that happened, but in some things, you, you cannot prepare for that. Yeah, well, that that's your likelihood thing again. Your millions to you know, your million to one chance yeah. of that sort of thing happening, but you know sort of yeah you can't prepare for those kind of things but you can prepare for you know yeah i know that 5 years ago this was a you know this was um you know somebody else's house it's been sort of demoed and fit in sort of redeveloped since then but it doesn't mean they cleaned up the soil mm, great point thanks so much for an awesome episode Sheridan <laughs> no problem it's been fun there's no real way to be completely safe when we're doing anything including working with soil. It's important that we continue to do all the right things from wearing the correct PPE to disposing of chemicals responsibly if we want to minimise soil hazards in our environment. If you enjoyed this episode, there are a few more soil-related episodes in the Plants Grow Here back catalogue, including episode 2, Intro to Soil Science, episode 40, Soil Carbon, and episode 84, Soil Levelling to Control Water and Increase Yield.